Now you can do some kind of clapping bullshit or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Clapping bullshit, bitches. <coughs> Got to get those coughs out of the way. Um, one, two, three. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> I've wanted to do that forever. All right. One, two, three. never do it right that's just the way it goes sounded to me like you were late <laughs> am i like one two you hit clap and then i'm like three and then i hit clap is that how it goes because that sounds like fucking bullshit to me boop 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 joe rogan uh yeah um oh, that was not a clap 2.7 listeners and yes we've bumped up to point seven like on our own little audience Richter scale. Um, Shaking it up. Yeah. I am a domestic god. And I'm a minnow trapper. <laughs> it just sounds good coming out of your mouth. We are the Doddlers. And this is the Doddlers Philosophy Podcast. All right. Um... Yeah, so, uh, how you doing? Switching to vodka today, because I think it does a better job of warming my cockles. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, well, it is, uh, you're having a little October 10th or whatever blizzard, as you say. Where, where what day is it? The great... <laughs> is today the 10th? Yeah, yeah. It's when we recorded it. Put it, mark it in your calendar, folks. Although there is a hurricane slamming into Mexico Beach, Florida or something. Anyway. Current events! Um, uh, so, yeah, we are here today uh, to chitty chat about uh, one of uh, a philosopher who's been quite influential on Harland. And, um, you know, to be honest with you, I... Because my background has always been much more uh, uh, dedicated to science. Um, you know, it, it just didn't really run into Den Daniel Dennett, except for a little bit with one of his books called Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Uh, but I mean, it wasn't top of the list necessarily. 
And then, you know, I end up talking to some of these philosopher types and they're like, oh, have you heard about the universal acid of natural selection? And I'm like, what? Anyway. Um, so, well, he, uh, I don't yeah, know. It seems guy, to me like he may be disappointed about that. If a scientist is going to be familiar with a philosopher, it seems as though they might be mo- more likely to encounter Dennett than most. He's quite the naturalist. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I think that the one that, the ones that scientists are most familiar with are like Aristotle and Socrates and shit. Well, sure. Yeah, those bastards hugging all the fame and glory. Um, but whatever. The, uh, the point is, we're here to talk about Daniel Dennett. Well, not just Daniel Dennett. We're going to talk about some of the things that Daniel Dennett has done as a tools for thinking aggregator and some of the applications. Um, and uh, Creator and aggregator. There's no... What? Well, creator as well. He's not a mere aggregator. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about this uh, relatively recent book. I think he's got a new one out since this, but Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, which has some just general thinking tools, some ideas from other people that he's going to attempt to rip apart, and then a bunch of his own stuff that he's accumulated through his long and distinguished career. Oh, yeah. Long and distinguished. Uh, not extinguished. <laughs> not yet. Um, His heart tried to blow up on him a couple times, I think, but medicine stepped in. It wasn't the power of philosophy? Well, we wouldn't have had these medical technologies were it not for the advances of philosophy. (laughs) Take credit for it all, why don't you? Somebody's got to. (laughs) That somebody is you in the great northern blizzard. So for people like Ryan, philosophical ignoramuses, uh, Dan Dan is, I think, relatively big deal. He's big. He's old now. Uh, He's taught at Tufts, either in or outside Boston, right, for... Many, many years, probably, I don't know, 50 or so. I don't know if he... To what extent he actively is in the classroom anymore. Um, he's one of those that has a fancy-sounding pedigree. Got his degree, undergraduate degree at Harvard under Quine, and his doctorate at Oxford under Ryle, and he's just, you know, he can drop all the names and do all the stuff. And he's become, uh, to my perception, one of the more well-known and influential of the contemporary analytic American philosophers. And I've been known to say from time to time that he is my favorite living philosopher. Mm. Though there's plenty we disagree about, so that might be a commentary on the state of contemporary philosophers as much as Dan. But no, he's good. He's got a lot of good things to say. And we're going to talk about a bunch of them tonight. Sweet diggity. Well, where do you want to begin? Uh, you know, it is, after all, basically, it, you know, there's this book out there, and we're kind of 
chugging along sort of through it. I wouldn't say we're going beat for beat or anything. We're <laughs> like chapter one, page oh, one. Oh, yeah, because this thing's paragraph. got like 80 chapters or so in it. Right. So uh, we'll just, you know, hit a few highlights, things that we, I or we think are useful and important. As a warm-up, um, he broke them up into these different categories. Some are general thinking tools, some are about semantics, some are about consciousness, evolution, and free will. Those are his areas of specialization throughout his career. His dissertation and first book was called Content and Consciousness. And he sometimes remarks that he has basically not changed his mind on too many things since then, and his career in large part has been working out the details and constructing persuasive arguments for the same themes over many years. Real quick, does that yeah. not like raise any flags at all for you? That he hasn't changed his mind? I, as soon as I was saying that, I thought you might whine about it. I mean, he, it can, totally. Like, that, in general, I think, is a red flag. If you run into someone that says, that brags about how rarely they change their mind. I don't think Dennett is that sort of person. Even in this book, he talks often about how... One of the super simple thinking tools at the very beginning, if not the first one, is make mistakes. Just literally. That's one of the... Be comfortable taking some risks, putting something out there. Yeah, that's the first chapter, making mistakes. So I don't think that he's the sort, any sort of, well, everybody's a little bit dogmatic compared to me, but I don't think he's very dogmatic or needs to be criticized for refusing to change his mind when he ought to, at least in my opinion. But he's never found a reason to, so dot, dot, dot. Joking. <laughs> Pull up your crickets. All right. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the things, you know, he's just like, all right, make mistakes. Go out there and uh, create something. Like, you know, go make a podcast. Say some stupid shit out into the universe and see what it does for you. You'll fall on your face enough that maybe it'll get some character. It's interesting you say that, but I mean, I I don't want to I don't want to stall us too much, but it's kind of funny because to me, like I think, you know, uh, that's kind of the hallmark in my thinking of academics in general and most intellectuals when engaging in intellectual activities is that they don't ever want to seem as if they are learning; they are here to report. Right. That's I also perceive that as a general tendency. So that's why I was bringing that up in Dennett's defense. After I say the dangerous sentence, well, he's basically been on the same thrust for 50 years. And then you're like, what? Is he <laughs> one of those? I don't think so. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll just do a little potpourri. We'll flip through some of these things. We'll see which ones we're like, yeah, that's that's good. I'll put that in the toolkit and which ones maybe generate some debate back and forth betwixt us. But if nothing else, we'll expose 2.7 more people to some of these thinking tools. So yeah. one of the things that I 
respect about Dennett is his general tone in his public discourses. He often, and this is another reason you ought to have heard of him, he gets in <laughs> spats with other big names back and forth in publications often. He's done a bunch with Gould, a bunch with Chomsky, Sam Harris, and people more respectable, whatever. Like, he's done a lot of it. And I like, he typically, to me, comes off well in those. And I think one of the reasons for that is one of the things that is labeled a thinking tool in this book that he calls Rappaport's Rules, which gets even extra bonus points with me because Anatole Rappaport, from whom he borrowed this thinking tool, is another of my favorites, though no longer alive, and one of the best general semanticists, episode eight, around. So it's nice that, and he seems very underappreciated. Not very many people reference Antoine Rappaport much, but at least Dennett knows who he is. And the way that Dennett rephrases the Rappaport rules is as follows. This is what he's saying. This is how to compose a successful critical commentary. One, you should attempt to re-express the target's position so clearly and fairly that the target says, Thanks. I wish I'd thought of putting it that way. I like that one. Makes a lot of sense to me. It seems effective. If you can restate someone's point back to them, it shows that, number one, you understand it, so that then, when you subsequently criticize it, they'll not have that out, because they'll already have agreed with you that, oh yeah, it looks like you've got it. Number two, list any points of agreement that there are. Kind of build some rapport. Get them on your side. Number three, mention anything you have learned from your target. No comment, don't care, that one doesn't do much for me. <laughs> uh, and then number four, only then are you permitted to say your criticisms. So... I think, in general, that's a good strategy, especially when going back and forth uh, in verbally with another quote-unquote intellectual type who thinks they know what they're talking about. Is interlocutor or whatever? Yeah, there you go. The right that's a good one. Sure. That, yeah. <laughs> Philosophy! Yeah. Um, yeah, I... I I want to ask, is this, I mean, is it an ideal that you'd be able to get them to get your target to get to the point where they essentially thank you for putting it better than they could? I mean, that seems like an ideal scenario. As we just discussed, most people are in the business of reporting. They're not in the business of learning something, which is interesting because we've just already mentioned that. And here in Rappaport's rules, we have this idea that you should mention anything you've learned from your target. Um, to me, it just sounds like uh, if you were to apply these four steps, these four rules, what have you, um, it would slow the pace of your own chimpiness, potentially, you know, if you actually did try and re-express your target's position. Because maybe you have a hunch that something's not right. Maybe you don't come fully loaded to every single conversation you ever have, and you're like, oh, yeah. I have an answer for that. I have an answer for this. I have an answer for those things. You know, like you come in and maybe you actually need to kind of think about it. And 
if you ever get the chance, maybe if you've thought about it for a while, you could kind of step through these four rules and actually have a more civil conversation with somebody. Mm-hmm. I think it probably would do well to minimize chippiness on both sides. Like you're saying, it would slow yours down because instead of being reactionary and immediately right. attempting to rebut the points that pissed you off, you can take a step back and be like, all right, well, what is it you're trying to say? What's the best case scenario? Let's work together to make the best argument we can make in the direction you want to go, then see if we can refute it. And it sort of makes everything more team-oriented and collegial than aggressive and confrontational. Right. And and just in the process of doing one through three, you might uh, see that you yourself need to revise or, you know, any kind of things you've smuggled in that you are not acknowledging might come up, come up and you'd be like, eh, I need to handle this before I can actually, you know, rebut or criticize this argument or premise or what have you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, cool beans. Cool beans. I don't suppose we need to say too much about that one. It's just like, eh, here's a little thing. Use it if you like it. Nope. Another thing he mentions he calls Sturgeon's Law, and as a cranky misanthrope, I like this one because it says, 90% of everything is crap. Yeah. I, of course, lean towards a higher number than that. Ooh. But, uh, yeah. I, but it's that, in the 90s, right? It's one of those things where, where we're like, 99% of all species are, are, are extinct. Or 90% of everything's crap. You know, we, we love our 90 and above at least. Yep. But then Dennett does some, tries to do something more useful with that than just be a contrarian. And I think his point is, when choosing how to invest your time and energy, who are going to be the foils you select when you write your paper, etc., just deal with the good stuff. Don't bother and go grab an easy piñata and smash it apart. Everybody knows 90% of everything is crap. We don't need to spend our time refuting the crap over and over and over. Instead, concentrate on the segment that you find reasonable and the best that you're aware of and try to improve from there rather than just, you know, bashing on morons. Oh, but it's so fun. Right. This is not about fun. <laughs> That's right. This is serious shit. All right. Okay. Uh, that one seems pretty simple. Um, a cute one that I liked that was new to me, but that once, this is one of those memes that once you learn it, you start looking around and you see them everywhere. It's called a deepity. And that's apparently he got from some uh, teenager who just kind of threw it out when their father was trying to expound about something at the dinner table. And the cynical little teenager is like, wow, good one, dad. You just said a deepity. So what is a deepity? A proposition that seems both important, true, and profound, but that achieves this effect 
by being ambiguous. On one reading, it's obviously wrong, but it would be extremely important if it were true. And on the other reading, it is true, but it's just trivial. And Dennett's example is the phrase, love is just a word. In one sense, it's just, it's true and trivial. Yeah, all right, you put the little, waggle your fingers in the air around it and say, quote, unquote, love is just a word. Yeah, everybody knows that. But the, you, in your mind, are supposed to equivocate and mistake that with the deep phrase, oh, wait, love is just a word? Does that mean that all of these emotions that I feel as though I have experienced at various times are just somehow hollow or empty or fake because there is no such thing as love, it's only a word? That's the sense in which it's false but earth-shaking if true. So those are fun. I like that little idea. Yeah, that one's uh, that one. That one's cute, as you said. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> yep. Okay. Cool. Onwards. <laughs> he talks briefly about Occam's razor, and I, and uh, you know that's another one of these that's not a Dennett coinage, but is uh, one of the big big ones in philosophy. You're going to use it often, uh, and that's just the whole law of parsimony. We always had to call everything a law. The preference <laughs> for parsimony um, that is motivated by the basic reductio ad absurdum style arguments of if you don't value parsimony, then any situation you find yourself in that you want to theorize, hypothesize, model, whatever you want to do to it, you will always have an infinite disjunction of equivalently respectable theories because they have more and more unnecessary, superfluous, redundant, explanatory entities in it. Um, Well, yeah, combustion engines work because all the chemistry and mechanics and whatever, and... They have a bunch of epiphenomenal demons or what, you know, you can always add more things on top of something. So most people become convinced quite swiftly that parsimony is valuable when theorizing. Did I say that well enough? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say that to me that I've ever gained from Occam's razor and parsimony is that... It's just a way to simplify your thinking about, you know, what your what your focus is on. And so, um, if you've got too many details, it's really it's just hard for the human brain to keep track of all that stuff. And you know, simpler theories. I don't know if anyone would say that they are co- more correct, but it keeps you, uh, um, what am I lean? And just able to just, you know, stay light on your feet rather than be bogged down by all these things you have to constantly be keeping track of. Um, I think it applies often in, like, math and stuff like that. Um, I think of things like the Taylor series or whatever, where you're just kind of sloughing off the extra error that is just going to have a very little effect on the outcome of your, you know, 
your estimate or whatever. You know, you're just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to cut it off. I'm going to lop all the error terms off at this point and just say, you know, it's these three in particular that I'm going to work with or whatever. That's how I see it. It's just, I think sometimes people take it a little too far, to be honest with you. Um, but I think it's, if used well, it can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. I don't suppose you have an example on the tip of your tongue of where you think it goes too far. That's fine. Yeah, I don't have one on the tip of my tongue right at this very second, um, except for that. I just think that it's one of those things that's often discussed. And, um, you know, I mean, I could go into a big speech about things. I don't really want to. I just had that point to make. But I just think that, yeah, I mean, if... A, a theory of everything isn't going to be just one thing, you know, it's not going to be three things, it's, you know, it's likely going to be everything, you know, and so I think that when people try and simplify things, they're doing it for their own sake, you know, and that's fine, because you're doing it for for my sake as well, because I can't keep track of the entire universe either, if there is such a thing that, <clears throat> with all the various moving parts, so simplifying models, in my opinion, are a great way to try and talk about things, but when you start to try and, you know, make mention of whole entities and how things, everything is connected and whatnot, um, you know, it, it can become more difficult, in my opinion, to stand by the simple little theory that you have. Um, all models are wrong, but some are useful, and I think that's what this is. Hmm. I don't know if we want to get hung up on this or not, but I'm not convinced... That you know what Occam's razor is. <laughs> the A statement of it is do not multiply entities beyond necessity. So invoke in your model only an ontology minimally required for your explanations and don't include anything extra. But I hear you as saying something more like it's not that we razor and cut those things off and say they're not there, that we don't include them in our ontology. We just restrict our domain of attention such that we ignore more of the environment. Which I think it would make more different. sense if you had done numerical modeling. Um, I, I think there are a lot of various things that we might want to take into account with a model, but that necessarily don't have an impact or a bit major sway or influence on the result. And it's a minor thing to say, okay, well, if you want to talk about because it makes more sense to you to say, oh, well, you know, forget about God and demons and stuff, that's fine. But to me, that seems like an exaggerated way of looking at something like Occam's razor. Um, to me, it's more just it's a it's about and if you can get some result without having to apply other additional factors, or if the factors that you apply don't give you much of a difference in the in the outcome, then you want to figure out what the simplifying assumptions are, and figure out what the main components are of your of your model, and that's your simplest version of it. You've got maybe three or four different interacting pieces. It's a more ingrained way of doing it, I think, because in sense, you know, what 
you really want to do, I know this is tools for thinking, but it's also, you know, if you're talking about science and things like that, then it, it you know, who's going to be like, and then the demons came in, you know, Occam's razor doesn't just apply to prejudiced thinking. I'm not totally grasping, I guess, the distinction you're trying to make. Because to me, you keep saying things that I wouldn't classify under Occam's razor type considerations. One of the things I thought I heard you saying was about kind of satisficing or something. If we are convinced that some factor is negligibly relevant, then we can, given our whatever you guys call it, is that a delta or whatever, our, how close we care to get, if something doesn't appear to impact the result to, a, to what we consider a significant degree, then we don't include it in the model. But that's not doing ontology. I think you're just. I think you're just in the philosophy headspace. So we can move on. The next one. The reason that Occam's <laughs> Razor came up because I thought, oh, everybody knows what that is. That'll be easy. And learn better was to well, talk about uh, this uh, other one that I had never heard of before reading this listeners. book that they call. <laughs> Remove Occam's that from your from your uh, list. Of, you know, objection or whatever, I don't know, sustained, anyway. Occam's broom, the device with which inconvenient facts are whisked under the rug by intellectually dishonest champions of some theory or another. So this, again, sounds like those people we were concerned with near the beginning who are already decided, and they have their pet theory they they know what it is already so then they might be motivated to discount or ignore or hide or neglect any work that didn't support where they already wanted to go okay another one that impacts my daily life after being um, introduced to it, trained in it, is the what Dennett calls the Shirley Alarm. I was already on the lookout for absolute terms in general. But this particular example, again, like once you get this in your head, then you go read things and you start seeing it everywhere. The way Dennett talks about it is, often the word Shirley is as good as a blinking light locating a weak point in an argument. The author has to make a judgment call about whether or not to attempt to demonstrate some given point or provide evidence for it. But because life is short, that author decided in favor of just baldly asserting it with presuming or assuming that everyone would agree. You know, when you're writing something down, you're like, well, surely everybody knows what Occam's razor is. So then you might not bother to spell it out. Well, surely parsimony is important when theorizing. Whatever. That <laughs> Dennett wants us all to be on the lookout for those and to have a little ding happen whenever we're reading and we notice someone, some author say, surely X, Y, and Z. Stop. 
take a look there and think like, well, why are they saying surely and then asserting something without argument? Do we really agree to it or are they trying to sneak something in? Okay. That one also will probably come up later when we get to some of the more complicated ones, I think. Okay. As will this one that Dennett calls the Sorda Operator. And I really like this one, again, as an anti-essentialist, when we don't want to be concerned and attempt to make absolute claims and, and say that something, well, it either is or it isn't. It, instead, Dennett suggests, well, we can say, well, I mean, it sort of counts. Um, why indulge in this sort of talk? asks Dennett. Because we need to keep track of facts about multiple levels. What something is and what something does. What something is can be described in terms of structural organization of parts, so long as we can assume that they function properly. But what things do, how they perform, if they do well enough at a given place, that licenses perhaps the assumption that we have a building block that we can use to build the rest of our argument. That he's asking us to be less concerned with attempting to establish unarguable certainties and essences and instead be kind of a pragmatist about it and just say, I don't know if this... You know, he's interested in consciousness, talks about beliefs a lot or something. Well, I'm not going to argue about whether a thermostat really has beliefs doesn't really matter to me. I don't care. It sort of does. It, when I describe the thermostat as though it has beliefs, it works well enough. So it's, the sort of operator is kind of works the same thing as what they call scare quotes. It's a way to acknowledge in your writing that this is contentious and debatable, but that for reasons, we think it's good enough to move forward with it and say, well, you know, it's sort of it's sort of a species or it's whatever. How many people use sorta besides Dennett? I doubt very many, at least in academia. But there are other ways to make the same move. And I would say lots of people are philosophers of the sorta even though they don't use that term of art necessarily. I mean, not enough. I wish there were more. I think that we should all be sort of, sort of guys all the time, most of the time. Well, I'm, uh, why? I mean, not, not, uh, not what, I mean, like why that word? I mean, did, were you okay with it being done in different ways? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Done in different ways. I don't give a crap about this word. It's another one of those cutesy things. People, when speaking, will colloquially accidentally slip into that and just, and from time to time say it. It usually doesn't make it into a journal article. 
Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> I, I wouldn't expect it to. One of the overarching themes of Dennett's career, as I understand it, involves this next thinking tool that comes from the philosopher Wilfred Sellers, the distinction between what he calls the manifest and the scientific image. And what those terms mean in general, I can get the quote of how Dennett says it in a second, but basically, the manifest image is what we might call common sense. It's what we receive, what most of us receive in our, in the course of general development. In the manifest image are things like colors and tastes and skinned knees and television programs and cups and tables and beer bottles and just all the ordinary language, regular shit. Scientific image, on the other hand, is whatever science, at a date, 2018 in our case, whatever the most widely accepted models in science say. So, I don't even know what that is at this point, but to not to stick me to these exact things, but it's those th- the guys that talk about atoms and molecules and quantum particles and electrons and mass energy and space-time and whatever the scientists talk about. So, I think the primary, one of the primary points of Dennett's work is to attempt to unify those two. He wants to, on the one hand, respect the scientific image, let the scientists decide what is included in one's ontology, but then to also respect the manifest image, and it talks about consciousness and free will and all of these things that Dennett works on, and he wants to attempt as best as possible to sort of explain manifest image things in terms of the scientific image. Those that he can't do that for, he will eliminate. Most of the time, he tries to make them fit together. But if there's a conflict, the scientific image wins for Dennett. But he talks about that Sellers dichotomy a lot, and that's what he's trying to do. Yeah, I mean, this seems similar to Gorgypsky's uh, uh, general semantics viewpoint, you know, um, that we should align our language with what we understand from science today. So it should reflect that. And this sounds like similar kind of thing. Yeah, I guess it kind of is. I've never run into Dennett reference Korzybski or anything about general semantics before I don't know if he knows what it is or doesn't know. But I can see the parallel there that you're pointing out between those two projects. One more in metaphysics and one in linguistics. But, yeah, I like that. So, that's the end of the kind of the, the general heading, thinking tools. And now I think we can move into one of Dennett's specialties 
consciousness. Talk a little bit about that and some of the thinking tools he uses there. First one, we'll just do another term that he created that has become extremely popular since is the term folk psychology. And I think folk psychology is basically a uh, the manifest image version of how all of us learn to explain and predict each other's behavior. That in the concepts of folk psychology are things like belief and desire, and we notice someone pull out an umbrella and run towards some shelter when it begins to rain, and we explain that behavior by saying, oh, well, that person believes it's raining and desires not to get wet. And that explains those events in my environment. That would be a folk psychological explanation. And I think that's where things like consciousness would also reside, at least parts of it. Certain philosophers do more with consciousness, but it's also in folk psychology. Okay, <laughs> um, so that's so in those back, you know, to use the seller terms or whatever, and then apply folk psychology to it. Then Dennett's job would be to attempt to make folk psychology scientifically respectable. Some parts of it might get thrown out, and some parts of it might get reformulated in terms that are that uh, scientists might be able to get behind. One of his big projects that got an entire book is what he calls the intentional stance, and we can't, one can't talk too much about Dennett on consciousness without talking about the intentional stance. So, what the hell is it? Uh, he breaks it up into... Well, okay, so the intentional stance is basically doing folk psychology on a system. If you can take a folk psychological picture of something and explain and predict its behavior with relative robustness by attributing to it beliefs and desires and rationality, if you can explain it, a system, successfully by making that move, then you have taken the intentional stance toward that system. It's somewhat unfortunate terminology, as often happens in philosophy. We've got this albatross term from the, I think, late 1800s or so, German Brentano, that we have this intentional thing. And what that means in this context is not doing something on purpose or with intent, but rather something is intentional if it has aboutness. So a painting or a sentence or potentially a belief would all be about something. So anything that has aboutness or content or meaning would have intentionality. And so since beliefs and desires are intentional objects, Applying beliefs and desires to something is taking the intentional stance toward that thing. Dennett then embeds the intentional stance in a trichotomy with the physical stance and the design stance. So as a naturalist, materialist, physicalist type guy, 
then it thinks that everything in our universe can, in principle, be fully explained by only talking about the atoms and the laws of physics or whatever, the, the physical stance. However, given our limitations as chimps, we cannot, we can very rarely successfully apply the physical stance. So often we have to jump up a level and take a design stance towards something, which means we assume that the object or system in question is an engineered object that has a purpose and that it is functioning properly. Uh, an example he uses here is with an alarm clock. If you show up at a hotel and you look at this device that you've never seen before, but it seems to have some red glowing digits and buttons on top, you make the assumption, oh, this is probably some uh, a designed system that has the function to tell time and to make noise when I tell it to make noise to alert me to get my ass out of bed. So usually, when encountering an unfamiliar object that we choose to classify as an alarm clock, we take the design stance toward it. We sometimes drop back down to the physical stance when designed objects malfunction. My alarm didn't go off. What the hell's wrong? Oh, well, uh, the ceiling leaked on it and it got wet. And because of that, some electrode shorted out and then the bell didn't go off, whatever. We, so we can drop back, because everything is ultimately physical, we can always use physical stance. But when applicable, humans, given their limitations, will jump up to as high level stance as they can. So we go to design and then to intentional when we get to things complicated as animals or even some computers and computer programs. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I think it's necessary to kind of put it out there in a in a little bit broader context, at least the the terminology, because this is one of the things that Daniel Dennett does quite often is he comes up with a lot of terms for things. Mm-hmm. He's not alone. Lots of people do that. Uh, but he alone has come up with a lot of terms. Yeah. Um, critics would say he comes up with cute new names for old ideas. Uh, but... You know, when you talk about folk psychology, that's part of, you know, there's lots of people have come up with other names for these things like common sense psychology and naive psychology and mind reading, mentalizing. And the big one, I think, which is in psychology, they call it theory of mind. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's embedded in with a whole, it's the, it's a synonym for something, which is, as you described it, um, you know, has to do with, you know, attributing in some way some kind of beliefs, desires, hopes, things like that to something. And um, I think the intentional stance gives it a much larger framework. It allows it to kind of operate within various, it's not just this standalone thing, a bunch of psychologists not caring about anything else but psychology. In this case, with with the physical, the design and the intentional stance, you have this larger framework that you can operate out of and it just gives it a little bit more um not to <laughs> make a joke but gives more elbow room um that's a Wah-ha! that's a <laughs> i did it joke yeah anyway he has a book called elbow room for anyone who doesn't know one of his multiple free will books 
Um, right. So, the, I mean, what the intention, what this stances thing is in, again, to come up with more <laughs> terms, he comes up with terms for everything. In this book, he talks about that some of these things aren't really intuition pumps or thinking tools, but they're more like staging uh, in the sense of maybe when you're doing some work on the front of a large building, you're washing the windows or painting it or whatever, you might have more fun if you erect a large edifice of platforms on poles that they might call staging that you can then easily move about on while doing your task rather than having your one ladder that you got to keep hauling every time you move three feet (laughs) to the left. So that bringing up these things like the intentional stance is kind of setting the stage for when he wants to make other points about philosophy of mind uh-huh. later. Right. And that's also what the next one that I planned to talk about is. It's more staging. Uh, and it's another... And I mean, I think you're right about what you just said, that he often will make a label for not necessarily a new idea, but he will apply what may or may not be a catchy or memorable or useful mimetic engineering term to a well-established institution that we already do, mm-hmm. like folk psychology. But I think that's not a trivial task at all times. Sometimes the term for something sucks, like <laughs> a bunch of Korzybski's terms, or sometimes there is no obvious term for something. And it makes it easier to operate with something if you can attach a handle to it. For sure. And I think that... Um out of all of the various competing f- phrases out there, I I think folk psychology is the most uh, attractive one. Uh, there's something about it that works. And I think it's better than theory of mind because when you think of something have it being like a theory, you know, there ought to be something behind it other than just you being like, yeah, hopes, dreams, beliefs, you know. <laughs> it just, it's a, that's a big yeah, name for us. Most yeah. of the time... <laughs> We, we use the term theory of mind, but people don't really even think that there's a full-fledged no. theory that's possessed and applied by the people or other animals who may or may not have right. a theory of mind, so that that might be a reason that term is suboptimal. Yeah, and and so it's been played off of as well. I think um, the uh, there was a primatologist who I think played off of the folk psychology idea and he ta- talked about it for chimps. They have like a folk physics or something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, that's just a side point. Added it out later. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, continue. So, yeah, he made up another word. And it's another one that may not be catchy. But it's called heterophenomenology. I'm attracted. You heteronormative... <laughs> white male cis male uh so phenomenology originally meant the catalog of phenomena of one sort or another before there's a good theory for them necessarily um and then in the sense of psychologists um stemming from Husserl they adapted the term phenomenology to refer to kind of subjective experience you know the whole 
armchair philosopher activity mm. that you just sit down and you you know what it's like in there. So study what it's like and talk about that kind of an introspective method. As a science-oriented naturalistic philosopher, Dennett doesn't much care for Husserlian bracketing style phenomenology. So he wanted to replace it with this heterophenomenology, which is a third-person methodology that, in Dennett's opinion, is the sound way to take the first-person point of view as seriously as it can legitimately be taken. Parentheses, given his epistemic framework. So if you already are a kind of science guy and you think that that's the way, the best way we have to talk about our environment slash nature slash world, universe, whatever, we would do well. You can't just take everybody's word for stuff. But what you can do is set up a situation, immerse them in a situation and ask them what's going on. Write down their report, but treat their report not as an infallible access to what's really going on in their consciousness, but rather a sort of behavioristic text that you treat as their honest report of the best they can do to describe what's happening. So that you take it seriously and you analyze it in depth, but you don't consider it incorrigible, infallible access to a private domain. That's the move from phenomenology to heterophenomenology. Okay. You got that one? I think so. Um, you're in a sense... It's like you're studying the reports, but you don't necessarily have to be like, and these reports are, you know, orthodox or whatever. Like, it's just, you know, this is the report. Is that correct? Is that wrong? Yeah, you're just saying, well, that's what they told me. Yeah, okay. Uh this guy came up and said, I think therefore I am. All right, well, fine, all right. One thing you could do with that is say, oh, they just proved they exist. Another yeah. thing you could do with it is say, ah, this person said this sentence. What are we going to do with that, you know? <laughs> yes, okay. All right. So with that staging in place, let's see if we can try to activate Ryan's chimp at all or bring Ryan into this more and have more of a debate oh. or more interaction when we start talking about philosophical zombies. <laughs> zombies. My son loves zombies. Let's do it. Oh, really? We can get all kids love another them. listener. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the people that Dennett has mixed it up with the most often across his career are going to start coming into play. John Searle, who we've talked about previously, Jerry Fodor, 
and another one is David Chalmers, who's responsible for a couple of the memes that are going to be coming up next in this episode, including the philosophical zombie or P-zombie. Philosopher's zombies are, by definition, behaviorally indistinguishable from normal conscious human beings, but entirely lack any inner life or conscious experience. In other words, as far as I know, you are one, right? Uh-huh. This is kind of an, an other minds problem echo uh, that, well, of course, any of us individually knows, because we can do auto-phenomenology, that we are conscious yep. because we have this infallible, incorrigible, private access to the realm of qualia in our first-person experience. We know what it's like to be us. There is something it's like to be us. God, I hate that phrase. Um, <laughs> so a, a P-zombie, a philosopher zombie, would be heterophenomenologically indistinguishable from a conscious human being. Their behavior is identical, including their dispositions to speech acts. They would all they would say the same thing. They talk about how you could be at a party and have a conversation with them and get seduced and go home with them and marry them and whatever and live your whole life and it just turns out that the whole time they were a zombie. And you would never know because you can only access this conscious experience from the first person perspective. You got it or what do you think about that as a concept? Well, it's a weird one because to me it's just like why it feels like you're saying a lot but not saying anything at all. You know, like it's not you, Harlan, but you know, one is saying a lot without saying a whole lot. And it's just like, well, you took them home and you had a good happy life together. My daughter is crying and screaming. <clears throat> um but you know, you had a happy life. Everything's great. Oh, but there's, you know, there is zombie. Like it just like they do everything. And I maybe I'm coming through the back door on this. I don't fucking know. Um, but they do everything that everybody does. <laughs> and as far as you can tell, you know, you're the only non-zombie or whatever. And, you know, uh, you had a good life and whatever. Uh, but but they're a zombie. Like it, somehow I'm like, I don't quite know how that makes a big turn or big how that's a big deal. Uh it, it, that's the troubling thing for me. It's just like, I wish I had an argument from analogy on that one. There's one out there somewhere uh, for mm-hmm. me personally. Uh, but it's just sort of like, I don't know. It's, uh, and because he's been talking about all this stuff, like intentional stance, heterophenomenology, which in some ways are kind of just various versions of the same approach, it seems like to me. And so to a heterophenomenologist taking the intentional stance, they would just be like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, they did what they right. did. The behavior is all that matters. I can't do anything more than I can't get in their head. I can't be John Malkovich. So I'm just going <laughs> to accept it, you know, 
Yeah. <laughs> so am I, did I steal that from you? Were you going to, anyway? Um, nope. <laughs> but there's that whole aspect. So then it's like, well, why, why, why do you have to call it something, you know, like that? You know, why do you have to distinguish it when, if you have these other tools for thinking, like the intentional stance or heterophenomenology, you don't, you don't really need the, it becomes fluff fast as far as I'm concerned. That's a lot of alliteration. Oh, and there it was again. <laughs> well, right. I mean, I I assume this is clear, but I'll stop assuming it. This one isn't another one of Dennett's. This is one that he's entirely opposed to. Yeah. He, quote, thinks it's a flat-out mistake, a failure of imagination, not an insight. Um to bring up another term to make another meme he calls these things in this book boom crutches dennett is a sailor in his spare time one huh? of his hobbies okay nautical folks like they have a lot of strange sounding terms that land lovers have no clue what they mean <laughs> one of them is the boom crutch or i, I can't even remember now because when he talks about it he's like First of all, we've got these weird terms. But second of all, because we're well aware that we have weird terms, we also on purpose make up even sillier, totally fake terms <laughs> just for fun. Yeah. And I can't remember if boom crutch is an actual one or a made up one. But anyway, that it's the thing that you rest the mast on when the sail is down or I don't know what the fuck, something. But that when Dennett hears the term boom crutch, he thinks of a person, uh, of a medical crutch like you got a sprained ankle and you need crutches but that when you put your weight on it it explodes in your armpit <laughs> like you try to lean on something but it really is just a trap or a trick uh-huh. so that's what that's dennett's term for these intuition pumps or ideas or stuff that he thinks suck that are drastically flawed he calls them boom crutches and i think that he thinks the zombic hunch is a Boom crutch. So why do the people who do talk about zombies talk about zombies? Is your question or a question? Is that? Let's ask it. Uh, you're glad you asked. <laughs> and I have a hard time figuring it out also. On this set of issues, I'm totally on Dennett's side. I can't even see the Chalmers, Nagel, Searle voter point like i can't even see it but i think it has something to do with this eminently successful meme that dennett thinks is another boom crutch the hard problem and that also comes from chalmers and i feel as though i should try to find a quote on this rather than try to say it because i'm going to be too biased to even say it oh that's rough. It doesn't make it in the index? <laughs> God damn it. All right. The hard problem is how to explain conscious experience. What? Um, so on the one hand, you have all of our generalized cognitive capacities. How do we catch a baseball in flight? How do we select the optimal next word to say in the next sentence? How do we do 
color therapy or something on people? How do we figure out which environments are relaxing or stressful to people? All these kind of questions. Anything you can see in an fMRI machine or a CAT scan, anything that you can open up the skull and poke at, and they're all of a sudden hearing guns and roses, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Neuroscience, cognitive science, it's all the what Chalmers is calling easy problems. That stuff, sure. Third person, scientifically accessible, we can handle that. But what we can't explain, and we can't even see how it's possible for science to explain, is this subjective, ineffable, first-person, qualitative, conscious experience. That I don't believe in. So I I don't see the problem, and I don't... These people don't seem to make arguments. They just kind of say it over and over again, and they say it in different ways. So the zombie thing is Chalmers' version of making a Dennett-style intuition pump that's, I guess, supposed to work on people like me who can't really see the hard problem. He says, all right, well, if you don't get it, if you don't see the hard problem, imagine this. What if there were a person who were just like you, even a doppelganger, but they would have all the same behavioral dispositions, indistinguishable, but they would... There's no there there. They wouldn't be conscious like you are. And somehow that, I think, is supposed to help me, but it also doesn't. I still say, huh? I don't understand. I don't even necessarily think that is conceivable. And that's kind of where Dennett goes with it, and I'm on board. Dennett writes, When people say they can conceive of philosophical zombies. We are entitled to ask them how they know. And I, yeah, like, well, first of all, what does it even matter what you can or can't conceive? To me, that's like asking if you can or can't deadlift 300 pounds. You know, well, can you conceive of this? It's totally irrelevant in my opinion. But, even when you get to a place where someone says, well, I can conceive of a philosophical zombie, and since I can conceive of that, that proves that there's a hard problem, that there's something that science can't get at. And then I have this two-pronged response of, even if you could conceive of that, who cares? Because what you can or can't conceive doesn't license you to make metaphysical claims. But second of all, how do you know you can conceive of it? What makes you so sure? Prove that you can conceive of it. I don't know. So I don't know how far we'll be able to go with this one either, because it sounds to me kind of like you're in the same boat with us too, that you're like, what the fuck is this zombie thing? I don't get it. Yeah, the only thing I could think to say about the zombie thing is that the move that I could at least try and surmise that they're trying to make is that like, you don't think a rock is conscious. Do you? It's, it's, it feels like that, right? It's this, it's an implicit, Oh, maybe it's explicit. I I don't, I don't know, but it's a, it's an assumption that's made that the zombie 
doesn't have any feeling or something you know what i mean like it's like as if it was a thing made of organic tissues just like you just like me but it operated somehow where it didn't have the nervous system capacities that generate you know that arousal and awareness that neuroscientists might want to call that consciousness stuff and so you know it's like if you didn't have that but then i don't know i think the idea is that you'd be comatose otherwise somehow the body is just moving it, it, it doesn't yeah i mean it's a yeah you have to assume a lot i think that somehow you're missing the spirit or whatever it might just be one of those moves yeah i mean that's how it seems to me i, I think that's what and it i don't know i think it's how, conceivable i haven't you know that's their that's their viewpoint you know that's what's conceivable like hmm. they're tapped in I, like the matrix you know and they're just being fed you know and it's that kind of thing it's like anyway you mean the zombie yeah like my analogy would be neo tapped in is not a zombie he's he's uh you know he's got the spirit tapped into him you don't have to think literally about the movie the matrix but it's like if you were to remove that that connection and now he's just wandering about you know without the connection somehow there's something that the you know that's how i see that there's some added factor um and again, here I am probably walking in through the back door of this philosophical discussion. But that that's kind of what I was thinking. There's this attachment. And a zombie is a like an unattached being that knows not what it's doing. It just operates somehow. But even the things that I'm saying, I'm sure in the context of all the things that we've said already are suspects. So I, I don't know. But I think that's what I think they're trying to say. From where you're coming from, either in your personal life or your intellectual life, does any of this consciousness talk that you hear secondhand or that you briefly, periodically encounter, if you read about it, does any of this consciousness debate even make any sense what do you even make of this that there are people who spend careers and books and hours arguing about the existence or non-existence of consciousness i i never really think about it until somebody talks about it and i don't know if that's because i am more outwardly focused you know so i always was sitting there i remember on my the picnic table in the back of my house um, when I was growing up uh, in in uh, this was in a town in Maine, I'm not from Maine, but I lived in Maine for quite some time, and um, I remember looking looking up at the stars and just being like, well, what's beyond, you know, the stars? And then kind of I guess I had some information that I was able to use and say, oh, well, that's just more, so you know vast expanses of space in between the 
you know, the, the, the galaxies and then what's beyond that. And just keep going until you, you theoretically hit the, the leading edge. And while I think theoretical physics would find this assessment dubious, my, you know, <laughs> uh, 10 year old self didn't know any better one way or the other and would just go, Oh, you know what, what, what is that? What is it beyond that? You know, what is it beyond the universe or whatever that is, if that's even possible. And that would hurt my brain, but it was always very outwardly focused. No wonder you're not thinking about consciousness. Like, well, what, what is it? <laughs> you know, what is, where does that fox go when I don't see it walking by me, you know, out in the back, you know, or whatever, or, you know, that kind of stuff. Like where do these organisms hang out when they're not in my view? Are they just traversing or do they huddle down somewhere? Like, so it's always outwardly <laughs> focused, you know? And yeah. I was never like, what am I doing? You know, like I just never had that. So then when people talk about that stuff, it just never, it it never rings within me. That doesn't resonate as you would say. And so for me, it's, it's just, it's kind of, eh, you know, cool. Like we can talk about it. Sounds like people have a lot of <laughs> important things they feel they must say about it. Well, I don't think that, the following opinion I am about to express is the result only of extreme exposure. I think this is really the state of play right now on Earth 2018, but it seems to me that many, if not most people, think that this is the most important question for humanity right now. Like, the, the mysteries of consciousness is the current frontier. But maybe that's just because I read a certain set of books and you read other books. I think so. <laughs> because if you were to talk to somebody who is really into the search for extraterrestrial t intelligence, they'd say, the most important thing, the most important thing is encountering other intelligent life forms out there, or whatever. Like, that would rock the world like no other. Everybody has that thing that they say about whatever is important to them. Mm -hmm. If this was to happen, everybody would go crazy, you know. Um, if we understood this better, who knows? The theory of everything, you know, all that shit. But, you know, Higgs boson was figured out apparently empirically, and we still elect Trump. You know, <laughs> there's still Brexit, wah, you know, <laughs> we're like, yeah. yes, the Higgs boson, but fuck that shit. Whatever. Who cares? Yeah, I don't know. So, all right, let's hit this one real quick because it's one that we both like. And then let me try to get to this one that I was really hoping would generate some interesting conversation. So we've got Chalmers doing the hard problem and the zombies and the, you know, there's something here in addition to all of these smaller problems that you scientists are working on, there's also the hard problem. Dennett disagrees. He doesn't think that we need to solve the hard problem, but rather dissolve it <laughs> and just realize that there is no problem here. And he has what I find to be an apt and clever analogical mimetic response to the hard problem that he calls the tuned deck and it seems from reading and watching Dennett that another of his 
pastimes is I don't know if he dabbles in doing magic, but he appears to study stage magic. He talks about it in a lot of different contexts. And that's where this tuned deck thing comes from. Um, Hull, I think, is the guy he took this from who is apparently a famous card magician. And this card trick is a trick for other card magicians. So he gets a bunch of his colleagues around the table and he says, All right, everybody, I'm going to blow your minds. I've got a new trick. It's called the tuned deck, and I'm going to fuck you up. So here's how it works. And he pulls out the deck of cards, and he says, I've got this magic deck of cards where every card involved has its own little musical tone or resonance or whatever that it puts off. So he holds it up to his ear and kind of flicks through the cards, buzzy buzz, 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 and I can hear all the different cards, so I'll be able to find your card. Pick a card, any card, do the thing, blah, 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 buzz, buzz, boom, gets it. So, and he does this over and over and over again, and it continues to work against all of these other experts who should be able to catch him. So they kind of huddle up between each iteration of the trick, and they say, I think he was doing this. I know that trick. That's the blah, 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 blah. If we behave in this way, that will make that type of trick fail. So then they come back and they behave obstreperously and to try to foil that trick, but lo and behold, it works again. And then they huddle up and say, ah, I think I saw what he did that time. I bet it's this one. And then they go and try to stop him from doing the type B trick. But it keeps working, and eventually, after doing it enough times, they are convinced, they give up, and they say, damn, dude, you actually did make a new card trick. None of us have ever seen it, and we can't even figure it out. We're impressed. Good job. It turns out that the entirety, the way Dennett phrases it is, the entirety of that trick is contained in the title, in fact, in one word of the title, the word the. That by naming the trick with the definite article that this is a trick, he conditions the audience to be looking for and attempting to prevent an individual trick that they think he's doing over and over and over again. What he's really doing is running a type A trick on them, then when they behave in a manner to prevent the success of type A tricks, he switches to a type B trick. Then when they prevent a B, he does a C. When they prevent a C, he goes back to A, whatever. There's always something that he can look at what they're doing to block, and he can take a different path. All the tricks that Hull ever pulled on them were old classics. I mean, this is the way the story goes. Who knows? But they know all the tricks, but they never catch him because he always switches it up every time. And the trick of the tune deck is that there is no the tune. There's no new trick here. There's no single trick, but that it's a mixed bag of a bunch of different things that people have already developed, worked on, and known. Dennett is saying that's what the hard problem is like. Chalmers has christened something 
as the problem and that it's hard and different and it's not included in any of the things that you neuroscientists are working on. Dennett's saying, I don't know, I'm not persuaded yet. Maybe once you do solve all of the small, all of the easy problems, there will be no remainder. Why should I suspect that there really is a hard problem that's going to be left over? Because at this point, Science 2018 has not solved even the easy problems. And I think that's clever. I, I think it's clever too. I think it's a great analogy um, for the point that he's trying to make, for sure. Um, yeah. I, I don't have much else to add to it. I, I just think it's a, it's a really good analogy. All right. In lieu of having a pro Chalmers podcast guest, <laughs> we'll just have to leave him looking the ass for now. Not saying that he's refuted and that there's nothing that could be said, but neither of us is apparently willing to do it right now. So, I want to try to do this one. I fear, given my inductive data set at this point, that this also will not generate any friction. But... (laughs) Here's another thinking tool, another intuition pump from this book. I think it's super fascinating. And I've heard Dennett say in some interview somewhere that it's his favorite from the book. This one is significantly more (laughs) complicated than anything I think we've dealt with to this point. And we're also going to shift away from consciousness to talk about semantics or meaning, or content, uh, or truth, all these other things that we've talked about on the Dottler's Philosophy a bunch. It's an intuition pump entitled Two Black Boxes, and it will take a while to spell it out, but I'm going to do it, because in my opinion, it's worth it. So let's see what happens. Some of this will be quotes and some of it will be me interjecting. Figure it out for yourself. Once upon a time, there were two large black boxes. We'll call them A and B. The two large black boxes were connected by a long insulated copper wire. On box A are two buttons, alpha and beta. On box B, there are three light bulbs, one colored red, green, and yellow. Scientists discover these boxes and start studying their behavior. They observe that whenever they push the alpha button on box A, the red light flashes on box B. Whenever they push the beta button, the green light flashes. Right? So, easy enough. We got two boxes, a cord connecting them. If one button has, I mean, one box has two buttons and the other has three lights, if you push one button, you get one light. If you push the other button, you get a different light. The third light never lights. Boom. Easy enough. So, the scientists figure, well, we're pretty clever. I think what's happening here is there's a causal regularity, and it's probably facilitated by this copper wire. 
because if we temporarily disconnect the wire from one of the boxes, then nothing happens. So we think that probably the wire is connecting the buttons and the lights. How does this causal connection work? So then they kind of do like a wire tap. They get in there and they want to see what is it about this, you know, if the pushing the buttons like sends a signal or something. Is it that one is a, a stronger current or it's longer or there's two and the other one only has one? What is it about this? What's coming down the wire? So they tap in there, but when they do, they discover this. Whenever either button is pushed, they get a long stream of bits that come down the wire, like on and off. In fact, every time one of the buttons is pushed, there's 10,000 bits exactly sent down the wire. But every pattern is different. They look at a billion different ones or whatever, and they write them all down, and all the bit strings are distinct. But still, we're noticing the same pattern. One button makes green light, one button makes red light. So then they start to reason, well, there must be some sort of property of these bit strings that somehow indicate which button it was that was pushed. But we don't know what it is. So now we're going to crack into the different boxes. They open up box B, and what they see inside is an ordinary digital computer. It's got a program, a database, CPU, and when it receives bit strings down the wire, it does a bunch of processing. More bits are shuffled around. They open up A, they see the same thing. There's a computer inside of there. Uh, inside of A, though, there's a something that functions like a clock. And then whenever one of the buttons is pushed, it's like a pseudo-random number generator thing. They hit the clock and they see what time it is and use that to kind of kick off how the program goes. Other than that, there's no difference, no obvious noticeable difference between A and B. There's just computers inside there and they pass bit strings down this wire. Yeah. A and B, you mean alpha and No, beta. A and B are the boxes, alpha and beta are the buttons. Oh. It's, it's okay. hard okay. to follow, yeah. but... Um, when any individual bit string is passed down there and they watch the operations of the receiver, the operations are always different. There's no obvious pattern to how it processes them. It gets these different inputs and it processes them differently, but we still see this super tight pattern. If beta was pushed, you're going to get the green light. So then these guys are like, all right, well, what happens if we make up a 10,000 bit string and send it down the wire? We won't get it from A. We'll just make one up. So then they do that. They put one together and send it down the wire. And oh my God, all of a sudden they finally get the amber light. The yellow light goes off. Um, what the hell does this mean? So they make up 10,000 different 10,000 bit strings. Almost everyone activates the yellow light. What the hell? They push the alpha button. And again, they get red like they always do. But this time they note it, they copy it. And then they send that very same string down. 
so that it doesn't matter if it comes from A, it just matters what the string is, because they send the same one through their alternative mechanism, and that still, that also activates the red light. So it's not about the button, it's about the string. But when they try to make up a string, it's neither green nor red, but turns out yellow. What the hell is going on? I think that's all the pieces we need. So that sets up the mystery. Do you think... I mean, you read this one, right? Do you think I have expressed it before we give away the answer? Or did I miss an important aspect? No, I, I, I don't recall there being anything you've missed. Okay, got these two boxes. You push the two buttons. It always correlates with different color lights. The way it does it is by sending a long bit string down the wire. But we can't figure out the story beyond that. Somehow, I don't know, maybe they put an ad in the back page or something. But they eventually find out the creator of these boxes, and it turns out that it's two artificial intelligence programmers who built these boxes and wired them up. Box A was constructed by a human individual named Al, who had worked for years on an expert system which was kind of a database containing a bunch of quote-unquote true propositions and an inference engine. So it's got all, it's kind of like Wikipedia or whatever, right? There's all the Major League Baseball stats, meteorological records, biological taxonomies, history. It's, it just has all this stuff and then the ability to reason from it so that it knows that 4 plus 4 is greater than 3 plus 3, whatever. And then it turns out that Box B was built by a different human individual named Bo, who happens to be Swedish. I'm going to ignore that whole... I don't think we need that part. Whatever. So Bo makes Box B, <laughs> and what he, what he was doing was programming a knowledge database as his expert system. So it's just got a bunch of facts also. Uh, the way Dennett phrases, each has stuffed their respective database with as with as many quote truths as years of hard work had permitted. Eventually, they both got bored and they thought nothing was interesting happening, so they actually just turned their thing into a fucking toy that so that they could baffle philosophers with it. The different computers were programmed with different programming languages. They decided on a uh, transmission protocol of just basic um, English encoded in ASCII. So, what really is happening, according to these programmers, when you push the alpha button is, you push alpha, the, the computer inside of A chooses at random, based on the clock or whatever, a fact to encode into ASCII and send down the wire, which is then decoded by the computer in B, and if B agrees, quote-unquote, you know, and this is where the whole sorta thing kind of comes in from earlier. Like, do does it make sense to say that these computers have beliefs or have truths? No, we can't put scare quotes around everything. I don't know, they sorta believe it. Let's not waste our energy attempting to debate whether they really believe 
some arbitrary fact. Uh, Minnesota's north of Texas, whatever. But, well, they sort of do, because when you push the button, when you push alpha, and it sends down a bit string that is decodable into the English sentence, Minnesota's north of Texas, then B flashes the... I don't know why Dennett did this, but he made the true ones go red and the false ones go green. So it flashes the red light. Um, so that what... The, the explanation for the correlation of button to light is sort of agreement. Both of these computers have the same thing in their databases, and so you get the correlation between the button and the light. When they make, try to make up a string, a bit string, and send it down, almost all of those are not well-formed formulas, and so activate the yellow. It's just like error, nope. You did not send me a truth or falsity at all, but it's not an English sentence, period. So I just go yellow. So that explains that. So, Dennett's point, I think, with that big long story is there are, and you know, this to me in part harkens to emergence episode something we talked about. But it's like that there's these higher level (laughs) things. Yes, it's all still physics. It's all still bit strings and electrons shuffling and memory registers. And it's all totally explicable in terms of physics in principle. Though none of these scientists studying it over billions of trials would ever be able to figure out the physical level description. They have to take the semantic stance to it. They have to interpret what's going on as an exchange of true sentences of English between two systems that both believe that sentence. Put scare quotes where you need, put the word sorta where you need. But that if you don't recognize this semantic level, I think that Dennett thinks you will never understand the two black boxes. Wait. Say that last part one more time. If you neglect to appreciate the semantic level, the level on which these systems are interpreted as exchanging English sentences and agreeing as to their truth value. You sent me the sentence, uh, the 2017 NBA champions were the Golden State Warriors. That's what the bit string meant, quote-unquote, sort of meant. That was the content. And I look it up in my database. I agree. That's what my memory tells me also. So I flash the light that indicates truth. You sent me 2 plus 2 equals 5. I consult my database. I disagree. So I light up the other light. If you don't, like, I think Dennett's point is you're missing something and you will always be missing something about the universe, about this system. If you don't notice 
if you neglect this semantic level of explanation. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I agree that one is always going to be missing something. And uh, I'm having a hard time understanding the significance here. I, I must be a really bad listener right now, but I have been listening. You're missing the significance of the whole thing. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, of. No, no, and, uh, no I, I guess I'm missing the significance of the, the primary question you're asking. Or the statement that is being made. One of the moves that Dennett often tries to make, and that is that he gets in a lot of hot water for, is what he calls his kind of knife-edge realism, where he doesn't want to be an eliminativist about things. I figure kind of for political or social reasons rather than philosophical reasons. He doesn't like to just say, okay, well, there is no such thing as consciousness or there is no such thing as meaning. But he also wants to be a materialist. So he's trying to figure out a way to legitimize semantic claims. He thinks that there is something important and that ought to be included in one's story of the universe on a higher level than just the atoms, even though all that really exist are the atoms. And this is one of, I think, his moves to try to make that happen. He stresses over and over again in this chapter how When the scientists are looking, there's nothing magical here, there's nothing special, it's all still electrically manifested bit strings and deterministically operating computations. It's all deterministic, it's all physical, there's no magic here. But there's also higher level semantic facts here. And the only way to understand the data, the fact that every time you push alpha, you get green, every time you push beta, you get red, whatever it is, you know, however it works. The only way to explain that is to appeal to this level that has terms like truth, belief, content, meaning, that all these higher level non-physical concepts in it, even though the system is entirely physical. You can't explain why every push of alpha gives you a green light without talking about alpha is saying a truth of English and and box B is recognizing that truth and saying, ah, I agree. What did you think, if anything, when you read it? So everything's harder to do. Like when we get into these complicated things, it's harder to do vocally or whatever. Did- he kind of goes, I, I wasn't sure exactly right off the bat what the point was, uh, to be completely honest with you. And I just thought he was talking about the relationship that systems possess and that there's, I guess, you know, the semantics was the part of the thing that I guess stood out to me. The thing that I guess 
I thought about most was that notion that strings are like sentences and that some of these sentences uh, are assessed by the receiving box B as whether, you know, based on its database as to whether or not they make sense or not. And of course, I don't know, it's a tough one because he goes on and on about the details of this thing. Um, Yeah, I think maybe the problem is for you in this instance, it's just like these aren't problems that you consider or maybe that you care about or both. So that when people come up with these complicated, long examples that are attempting to address the quote-unquote problem of meaning like is there how does a sentence mean something or what is meaning you're just like i don't know i don't care what are you talking about i don't know meaning fuck you i don't know i i i mean i could is it a problem for computer science you know what i mean like and, and obviously artificial intelligence and things like that um i don't know that what do you mean? Is it a problem for them? Is it something that that is 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 it the kind of semantic? Is this this kind of problems, propositions, and all that that they're attempting to establish and create, an you know an artificial intelligence and things like that? That you know I don't know. I, I don't. I haven't. I have never really taken a deep dive into computer science, and it seems like a lot of philosophers really love computer science as much, <laughs> as, much as they love other things related to, you know, basic philosophical, metaphysical problems. I don't know um, how many do. I hope a lot. I mean, Dennett for sure does. Well, I mean, uh, John Searle is another one we've talked about. and Does Jerry Fodor? I don't think those guys, well, maybe. I don't know. I don't know if they care about it, but they care to shit on it. But I don't know how well-versed they are in it. I mean, remember how Searle was bragging about how I was asked to give a speech on it, so I went and bought a book because I didn't know what it what what artificial intelligence was. I don't think those people are well aware or care what's actually happening in the field. They just, from the outside, want to make armchair arguments as to why AI is impossible in principle. So don't even bother. So I think that part yeah. of yeah, that's painful. I think with this two black boxes thing that Dennett is trying to do at least two things. And one of them is artificial intelligence defense against Searle types. Dennett is saying, in part, all right, well, I guess, I mean, that's even the literal background of this, I think. We didn't, again, there's 80 chapters and we're not going through all of them. One of them was a Searle chapter about a boom crutch called original intentionality as opposed to derived intentionality. Some people claim, without argument, that human brains, conscious entities, are the only things that have original or genuine intentionality, and that the only reason that computers have any sort of appearance of meaning things is that they derive their aboutness from the humans that create them. Dennett doesn't like that distinction. Again, he thinks it's just a boom crutch, fake bullshit. And he's trying to say everything is sorta intentionality. There's no original, there's no derived, it's all sorta. And here's an example where we have sorta intentionality. 
We have these two things. Everyone agrees that they're just deterministic physical computers. But the only way to explain their causal regularities, the causal regularities of their interactions, is by appealing to semantic level descriptions. And so these to going to the intentional stance. That's the only way uh-huh. to do it. Yeah. So he this is a way to argue against Searle types again. And then number two of his purposes are uh, a tiny little quote is Moreover, now that this problem is dissolved, couldn't one see that there wasn't any hope of explaining the causal regularity without some semantical or mentalistic terms? So that I guess that's what I just said. I thought I had a different quote. But the other one is <laughs> that, he, and he's often interested in this. And this is kind of what we said with the hard problem and the tuned deck. Once you solve other problems, sometimes what we thought were important questions will simply no longer matter to us. And this I take as more pragmatism. Certain claims I don't need to refute. I just need to make you stop caring about answering that question. Are, are there such things as philosophical zombies? One way to address that question is to attempt to answer it. But if it's simply a bad question or whatever, another way to address it is to talk about other stuff long enough that then you convince the person who asked it to just be like, oh, all right, well, I can kind of see now why that's a bad question. And they just stop asking. So I think that was also part of the two black boxes thing. If we can get a relatively robust intentional stance explanation here let's just call sorta intentionality good enough we don't who cares about does the box really believe what it's saying i don't know it flashed a green light that that's enough like just deal with that interesting it's funny it's kind of like the dennett thing even though he does provide quotes and whatnot it feels like if you were to you know how we record this podcast we record separately and then I edit them and sync them up together. And it, it feels like with Dennett, I, I'm getting just the one, one, one of us recorded, you know? So you're just hearing the one, you know, it just, it has that quality. Like I, he's fighting his enemies and, but I'm like up on the hill. I have no idea really his enemies and what's going on. It, it, it's a, it's an interesting uh, thing because for you, you clearly have spent much more time with this. And so I'm definitely going to say uh, any uh, takes I have on Dennett in the writing in this particular book, and I have some of his other books and I've read his stuff. I, it's not like, but I, for some reason it, it, <laughs> it's <laughs> I, I, there are some things he does, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's great. But then there are other things where it's not that I think it's not great. I just am, I'm, yeah, I guess I'm sort of like, shit's just bouncing off my head and hitting the ground, you know? Um, yeah, I think you just don't care about the problems he cares about. I guess that must be in some way part of it. Um, there are things that he cares about that I also care about, but I'm not quite sure if we really actually even there care about the same thing. 
he's an interesting guy in the way he talks about things too. It's just a, I guess I'm just much more familiar with other kinds of ways of scientists talk about things. I suppose. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, he's a, that, he's it, you, he's it confuses me how little you two seem to grok each other. Even the, I mean, I guess it's kind of one directional right now because you've been exposed to him and whatever, <laughs> but that you're not getting it because he is such a pro science guy and even spends a third of his books and career and stuff working on evolution, which is one of your primary things. So that you don't seem to really get a foothold in his work and writing is interesting to me. Well, he, he, I have to say that I, what comes out from him is what comes out of a lot of these popular or big name white male philosophers of the primarily 20th century, late 20th century, I guess. You know, we talked about Gould. Um, he's not, I mean, he has philosophical uh, bents, but I guess you might want to call him a scientist if you're a philosopher. I don't know. Um, but, you know, these guys have like, they're just super confident and they just, they're super right about everything. And, you know, a philosopher who's alive today, who I appreciate his discussions of evolution a lot more than Dennett's, um, is, you know, Peter Godfrey Smith. You know, his stuff is great, and I I really learned quite a bit. And in addition to that, there's another guy, um, Samir Akasha. I really like his stuff on evolution. And so I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a particular style i don't i have no idea what it is about dennett i again there's not there's there are stuff that there are ideas and things that i'm learning and that i like but it's not a whole like the whole thing is like it's it's not easy for me to digest um and i don't want to turn this into like why ryan and Den it doesn't understand dennett I, I i think some things i understand some things i obviously don't appreciate as well as i could um, but yeah, that's, I don't know. It's a bizarre thing. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm sorry. <clears throat> yeah, let's. <laughs> you're like, you're like, ah, God damn you, you fucking bitch. I want to put one thing on the record before we close. And it'll be also like we were, like you were just talking about in relation kind of to Dennett's style or at least his rhetorical choices. That's one of the biggest places where I find myself having a hard time swallowing some of his claims and angles or whatever. But I think that it's mostly a verbal dispute rather than substantive. Because <laughs> I agree with his positions, at least as I interpret them, such as Okay, if there are zombies, then we're all zombies. Which, at various times he's written, and at various times he's tried to take back. 
because he's in, you know, and he does this with free will as well, that in his compatibilism, that he will say, yes, I'm a determinist, but I believe in free will too, because in my opinion, the relevant account of freedom and will that matter are types that are fully compatible with determinism. Am I the sort of system which has evolved the capacity to empirically distinguish the proximity of flying bricks and the bodily facility to successfully, in real time, dodge flying bricks? If so, then I can avoid them, and then that's good enough. I have free will now. I don't like those moves, because that's not what free will has meant for the last thousands of years. And I don't want... Like, he, I think, changes the definition of terms in order to include those terms in his ontology. Of course we're all conscious, it's just that consciousness is different than you thought it was. You know, he'll say yeah. in one breath, we are conscious, and in another, in another, we are zombies. I think we should, my tack on these things is that we should leave the definition of consciousness as what it has been. Don't try to change the definition. Just say, oh, that's what consciousness means? Well, then there's no consciousness. And we should just go the eliminativist route. Oh, that's what meaning is? That's what free will is? Oh, then there's no free will. I don't think that Dennett and I disagree about free will. I just think we disagree about the way we talk about it. And if I ever got the chance to take him out for a beer or whatever, this is probably the first thing I would want to discuss, is simply the rhetorical choices, like... No, I agree with you, we're zombies or whatever, but why are you so interested in claiming and defending that consciousness exists, or that we are conscious, or trying to explain it? Just be an eliminativist, man! <laughs> oh. So we'll probably uh. talk about that on a future episode, because that's another big interesting claim that I like. Uh, there, None of us are conscious. Can't get oh, into yeah, that right now. Consciousness, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jesus Christ. I Honestly, though, I don't know how long we've been doing this for. <laughs> Did you uh, edit this out later, too? Did you get a chance to see how long the first recording I believe was? we're at approximately one hour and 55 minutes or so right now. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, then we're close, I guess. We're closer. Oh, I see. Yeah. All right. Cool beans. Um, should we close the goddamn Dennett book and reopen it later when we talk about consciousness? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go back to a lot of things Dennett says because he's one of the biggest influences on me and one of the most prominent philosophers of mind these days, and I think that he is fairly characterizable 
as someone who doesn't believe in consciousness either. And I think that his buddy, Richard Rorty, also thought that and tried to push him off the knife's edge and into eliminativism. But Dennett still is trying to walk this narrow path of, yeah, we're zombies, but we're conscious. And he wants to change the definitions (laughs) of all these big, important terms. God and I don't it, like it. it. If you're listening, if, if you're listening, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he's been. This isn't super radical. I'm sure someone like he has considered this and has something to say. I haven't found the text yet where he directly addresses that issue. But I'm curious. Uh, yeah. Anyway, like you said, this episode was pretty much just uh, one person talking. <laughs> So, <laughs> apologies. <laughs> no, it's all right. We we plan to do many episodes. So, sometimes it'll be one person. Sometimes it'll be two people. Sometimes it'll be two people and the voices in their head. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, OBKB. Sounds good to me. I, I, I think we did this. People now... Can run out and get his books. Right? What is OBKB? It's uh, it's actually quite sick to use it now. To be honest with you, because uh, <laughs> it was like in a, I think it was in a, a Bill Cosby stand-up special, and talking about having like a fat lip or something like that from being at the dentist or I don't know. And his joke was that whenever he tried to say something like, okay, he would, his lip would get in the way. So he'd be like, are you kidding me? Or whatever. And uh, <clears throat> deep in the recesses of my brain, I'm like, <laughs> pull that one out. That'll be good. And you're like, what the what? fuck does that mean? Yeah, I, even when you explain it, I've never <laughs> heard that, but. I think I now understand. Bill Cosby, man. When I was a kid, dude, he was, you know, my my dad loved his comedy. God, my dad would laugh his ass off. Anyway, so I, yeah, I encountered the cause a lot. A lot of people kid. have, I think. Uh, it didn't always go well. Shit. Man, we... <laughs> This is why we're I, a friend of mine like pulled up our uh, podcast on iTunes and he was like, oh, and there's like an E next to every episode and it's like explicit or whatever. God damn right it is. We don't fuck <laughs> around, man. Uh, after a whole goddamn night of Dennett, we're like, and end it with Cosby and some brutal jokes or asides or whatever. Yay, we talked, we were like, oh, I guess I'll see you. And then, like, hours later, we're like, <laughs> whatever. Let's dawdle off. Julie, we're